Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hi there. Welcome. Thanks for being with me today. We have a great show for you today. We're talking about how trauma plays a part in OCD. Very interesting topic, one that I'm not too familiar with, but I've I've had some exposure to folks that have that debilitating illness. So that would be Peyton Garland is our expert today, and she'll be telling her story. How are you guys doing this week? I'll have to say and mention we got some rain this week. There was a break in the heat. It's just been coming down in buckets the last two days, and I don't have to go out and water all those plants tomorrow. I get to sleep in. (laughs) It's a treat for me. Plants are happy. I'm happy, and it's cooler. I think it's maybe 85 outside. It'll be 85 for the next couple days, so we're super happy about that. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to give a shout out to a few people this week that have interacted with me on social media. Ruben has subscribed to our channel on YouTube. Kayla and Timothy A. purchased some music from my store this week. Thank you so much. Enjoy that music and I appreciate your support of the ministry here. Let's see, Tiffany has subscribed to YouTube, and William, welcome, welcome. I hope that you enjoy the show. So let's introduce our guest for today. Peyton Garland is a writer, wannabe rapper, and coffee shop hopper who loves connecting people to a grace much bigger than expected. Her debut book, Not So By Myself, was promoted by former White House Press Secretary Dana Perino and endorsed by TED Talk speaker and creator of the More Love Letters movement, Hannah Brencher. Peyton is a guest writing coach for the Broadleaf Writers Association and frequent feature on mental health awareness and faith-based products like So OCD, Hope and Anxiety, Everyday Royalty, and You don't have to be perfect. She lives in Colorado Springs with her husband, Josh, JG, and their two gremlin dogs, Elfie and Daisy. Enjoy the conversation that I had with Peyton Garland. Welcome, Peyton Garland, to the show. Hey, happy to be here. So excited. Thanks so much for reaching out to me and coming on the show. We have a few things in common. Yeah, during my interview prep, I I loved your interview you did about Fred Rogers' legacy. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful experience for sure. Oh, man. I I love Mr. Rogers. I so miss him. Me too. That was some some good, healthy stuff you could trust to put your kids in front of. Yes, still. (laughs) 
And I did a little bio about you beforehand and looking forward to getting to know more about your life, your family, and your many talents. Now, I have to ask you. Yes. <laughs> with a name like Peyton, were your parents football fans? You know, I love that you asked that. <laughs> I was named after Peyton Manning. Uh, I my, thought so. <laughs> so my parents are huge University of Tennessee fans. And when I was born, Peyton Manning was still playing for the Vols. So you're exactly right. I was named after Peyton Manning. My middle name's Madison. Not quite Manning, but close enough. So <laughs> That'd be a little too creepy, right? <laughs> just a smidge. So I, I'm thankful there's some gender variation there. At least I have some sort of a feminine name with the Madison. Yeah, I'm not a, a big football fan. I know he's a quarterback. <laughs> right, won the Super okay. Bowl. You know, I, at least he went on and did some cool stuff. You know, I I can't complain there. That's all I know about him. I, I'm not a big <laughs> follower of football. But, uh, well, that's a really interesting fact about you. So I also found out that you are a fellow green tea connoisseur. Is that right? I am so coffee actually makes me sleepy which is very strange I don't fully understand why but tea is more of my go-to because if I drink coffee at seven or eight in the morning I want to go take a nap so wow. tea is yeah tea is just much better I love putting honey in my tea every now and then mm -hmm. I'll sneak some peppermint in my tea so I think tea is a little more fun to to play with so yeah. for sure tea I have never liked coffee. I don't like the taste, but um, I've always been a I tea wish drinker. I, I wish I did. I've tried to actually love coffee and be a connoisseur of all the different flavors and roasts, but I'm pretty simple, and then I lean toward tea anyway. Oh, well, let me tell you, I have the tea <laughs> for you. All right. I, I, cannot, I cannot drink American tea anymore. Um, when I went to France, I've been there twice. Wow. They they have this these tea salons, and one of them is called Mariage Frère. And after I tried their tea, I could not drink anything else. I have it shipped from France every time I run out. <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic, I didn't have toilet paper, but I had tea. I love that. Yeah, I could totally relate. I studied abroad in Italy while I was in college, and once I had lasagna there. Mm -hmm. I came home and nothing has quite <laughs> met the bar since. Totally yeah. relate to that. Yeah, my ex-husband was Italian, and so he would make everything from scratch. And that is the only way that I can Ooh, eat yeah. lasagna or any other Italian dish. So Olive Garden's just a no-go at this point. No, just no, <laughs> right? no. I don't go to Olive Garden. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to all you, you know, breadsticks <laughs> lovers out there. But uh, I think second place would be British tea. Um, nice. British tea is really good. We have a, an English garden tea house here in Arizona, and it's run by a, a British gal, and she has a really nice selection of tea. So I, I buy some of that, too. That's awesome. Your husband is a pilot, so if, yes, if he goes he to France... Have them pick up some go. tea for you because I think <laughs> I think I've seen it at the airport, the mariage frère tea. It could save you some shipping costs, so we can we can definitely work something out. 
half of my luggage is okay i buy <laughs> i buy half half of my luggage coming home is tea and the other half is fabric because i'm a sewer smart lady I buy all of my fabric over there so um yeah it must be awesome having a, a husband as a pilot do you get to travel to a lot of fun places not right now. So unfortunately, right when he finished flight school, COVID hit about four or five Ugh. months later. So it's been kind of not what we originally expected, but he has rented a plane before and taken me up privately. And that was, that's been a super fun experience. He He's great at what he does. So hopefully when things are normal again, if we ever even know what that means or what that looks like, hopefully travel will open back up. He and I can explore a little more. So am I right? He's with Cathay Pacific? So he is a, so right now uh, with COVID kind of throwing a wrench in the game plan, he is actually training Air Force pilots right now in Colorado, mm -hmm. which is really neat, super cool. But he is a cadet for SkyWest Airlines as well. So, okay. so awesome. dabbling in some military contracting and then walking onto the airlines. So super proud of him. And that's kind of what brought us out here to Colorado was SkyWest. So excited to be out here in the West and experience this beautiful weather. Yeah, I, I like talking a little bit about fun stuff because my podcast is, we talk about some dark topics and sure. I always like to at least have some, have some <laughs> fun in there. Sure. Uh, you know, offset the, the darkness right. sometimes. <laughs> it, uh, well, let's dive into, into your background. Um, let's talk about your upbringing first now. I, yes. I came from a fundamentalist Baptist background. Now yours was Southern Baptist, right? Yes. So it's, it's very, it parallels fundamentalism a good bit. So I grew up in Georgia, which is essentially the capital of the Bible Belt. I say that's where the brass was made <laughs> for the belt of the Bible. <laughs> um, and, and in the South, it's it's a very brick and mortar church culture. Oftentimes, it is what you see on TV, where your grandmother goes there, your great grandmother went there, the preacher's likely your your uncle. So it was. I grew up in that sort of culture where half of the congregation was blood related to me. It was it was a very strict culture. We had one pastor. Who, who stepped in, I guess, when I was around 12 or 13, and he quickly turned away from scripture. He, he was smart about it. it. It was using scripture to push his own narrative rather than letting scripture speak truth. Mm. And so Southern Baptist, I don't even know if that's what you would call it. it, it all, I'll be honest. After I stepped away from that church, after about seven or eight years of sitting up under it, I heard lots of people from the outside looking in describe it as a cult, just point blank. Yeah, it, it, had become a, it had become very manipulative, but it was, it was sneaky. And I think that's why people called it a cult is you're putting Bible verses out there. And so people just start nodding their head because you think, oh, the guy behind the pulpit just quoted David. He knows what he's talking about. And the next thing you know, or the next thing I knew I was almost afraid of God. I loved him because I was told to love him, but I was scared to like God. If that makes any sort of sense, like love yes. felt like the obligation, but I felt like I couldn't follow through with liking him. Like he didn't seem like someone I would get coffee with if he was on earth mm. today. And wow. like I said, I sat under that for a long time. And so that was my 
my childhood growing up in church. And I was also a Christian school kid and I went to a very strict Christian school. And so it was just rule after rule after rule. And there was so much of God being judge that I, I really missed out on grace for a long time. Oh, yeah, I'm so familiar with that. I mean, you went through the whole, you know, not wearing pants and the King oh, James yes. only. And I mean, I, you know, it, it's funny because <laughs> as you get older and, and I guess when you get away from that culture and you start doing your own research, it's amazing the simple facts you miss. Like I was, I was honestly told verbatim that anyone who read anything other than King James was a heretic. Mm -hmm. Don't believe a word they say. And once I started studying the history of why the King James Bible was written, it was a monarchy who just wanted his name stamped on a Bible. And then I kept reading and diving in. And I said, wait a minute, there was the Tyndall version before this. There was the Wycliffe. There was the Geneva this was not like Jesus physically wrote the King James Bible and handed it to the world. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just so many things where you're like, I, what, how did I miss this? But when you're in that culture and you're in that community and you're so deep into it, especially when you're like me and your whole family's in it, you truly believe everyone else is wrong. Yeah. My, my previous guest that was on the show, Will Hess, he uh, is from the same kind of a background and he's an apologetics preacher and he has a podcast called the church split and he went into great lengths to talk about those subjects also the other one we talked about was uh wine yeah. you know that you yep. shouldn't shouldn't drink you know a lot of drink and the, the grape juice grape juice yeah, yeah the whole go. thing and oh yeah and i i was drinking the Kool-Aid too for right. a long <laughs> time. Um, I, I think I had a better, uh, a better relationship with God. I had, but I definitely did the whole wanting to please the people around me and follow right. the rules as, as much as possible. Cause I wanted people to like me. Yeah. But when I got out of it too, I was like, you know, I need to really dive into this to see, is this really what I believe? I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. I'm talking right. about all these extra things that aren't really in the Bible. No, you're you're totally right. I my so my apologetics teacher when I was in high school, I'm surprised they let her work at the school because she was covered in tattoos. I don't know how many piercings she had. Her hair was like this purple color, but I loved her. <laughs> I loved her, and I think that's why. I think she showed up loving Jesus and not fitting this mold that everyone forced on her. But we were reading um, Understanding the Times as an apologetics course, and she was talking to us about something that I will never forget. And it was Christianity is not what you don't do. It's what you do. So you not drinking, you not sleeping around, you not, 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 not. That's not Christianity. When Christ came, it was more about serving what you were doing for the other person, who you were loving, who you were pursuing. And so that that's totally where I'm at now, now that I'm several years removed from that crazy culture, not that there's still not rules and not that God didn't put them there for us to walk in holiness and to honestly save us some heartache, mm -hmm. but it is so much more about who you're loving and who you're giving grace to rather than you just not doing X, Y, and Z. You're missing out on a whole nother half of the faith if you don't focus on what you should be doing instead of just, hey, I didn't do this. And being a, an abuse survivor, I've had the 
find out the hard way as to, uh, you know, wh who God really is and how does he mm -hmm. see me? He sees me as a precious child of God and he loves me for who I am and not what I'm doing. Right. You know, on the outside, it's he died on the cross for me so I can have an abundant life. And right. found out more, even more grace when I got out of my abusive um, relationship. Mm -hmm. So very thankful for that. Absolutely. Now, so let's talk about your OCD experience. So you're our OCD expert today. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> okay. to have you talk about this topic because, you know, most people only have a reference of OCD from TV shows, you know, like sure. Monk. I love I, Howie Mandel. I mean, he's famous <laughs> for not shaking hands and not touching doorknobs, right. you know. Um, love him to pieces. Um, I mean, I have a joke about being OCD about something or insisting that something be done a certain way, but sure. that isn't the same as the debilitating mental illness, is it? Right, exactly. So, and Monk, he has one of the four branches of OCD, which is called contamination OCD. And you can have one branch, you can have two branches. I personally have all four of them, lucky me. Uh, so, so there's contamination OCD. There's harm OCD where you're afraid if there's a knife on the kitchen counter, like what if, what if you accidentally stab the dog or what if you stab the baby behind you or... If you're driving down the road, what if you ran somebody off the road and you don't know it? Do you need to turn your car around to check on them? So that's that's harm. So that's just oh, wow. one of the four branches along with contamination. Then there is also um, mental thoughts and taboo rituals. So that's another one. It's also known as religious OCD. So my strongest one is religious OCD. And so what that means is I guess before I dive in too deep, I'll explain the physical science, because once you talk about the physical science of it, it's not just the symmetry OCD, which is the fourth one where it's, oh, everything has to be clean. I have to straighten all the picture frames. There has to be an even number of napkins on the table. So the physical science of all four of these branches is my adrenaline glands, when fight or flight kicks in, like when you have a thought that you don't like, and you can just kind of shake it off and say, oh, that was weird, or that's not me. With people with OCD, your adrenaline glands react to that thought and your body physically experiences the fight or flight. So the heart rate goes up, the head feels kind of dizzy and you're in a panic mode and you can't let go of the idea that that thought may or may not be true. And then what happens with people with OCD is their neuron transmitters fire faster than the average brain. You have a thought you don't want, like what if I ran somebody off the road? my heart will start racing, my head will start spinning, and you have these neuron transmitters going, hey, that might be real, hey, we might have a problem, hey, you probably should be scared, hey, your brain might be right about that, and it's just this constant mental exhaustion, and, and it's, it is very debilitating, so I, I have a wow. friend of mine who lives in Britain, I do have a friend overseas, um, she spends an average of six to eight hours in the day, not at night, um, in her bed, because getting out of bed with OCD is, is that intimidating and that scary for her. It, it can physically keep people in the bed. It, it's what drove me to seek Christian counseling and therapy. And the reason OCD can, can crop up so quickly is it tends to be genetic. So it's something you're usually born with. 
but a traumatic experience typically in children will trigger it. Mm. And my church culture, all the rules, constantly living in fear that I wasn't pleasing God, truly afraid I was going to hell because I didn't say the prayer the right way at the right time. Did it have to be in front of people? Was it supposed to be by myself? Religion triggered my OCD. And so that's why religious OCD is what's so prominent in my life. So you hate wow. to say it this way, but, but church abuse, spiritual abuse literally triggered a mental disorder. So mm. it took me a few years to, to work through not having bitterness with the church for separate, you know, separating my experience from every other church. And that's something that I have to, you know, I talk a lot about giving grace and getting grace and I have to do the same for church. Now I can't label every church as a spiritually abusive campus. Mm. That is really fascinating. I, I never yeah. really knew anybody that knew that much about the, the things that happen inside your body when you have sure. a trigger. Now, yeah. how does it compare with PTSD or like a phobia? What, what's the difference? Ooh, yeah, that's, so my dad is, uh, he served in the military for 24 years. He is an army and Navy vet. He did two branches. He has PTSD. And so with PTSD, the trigger, triggers work the same, but typically with PTSD, the triggers actually remind you of a specific experience that truly happened. OCD thrives off of a what if sort of thing. So what if I did run somebody off the road? Well, it, it didn't happen, but your brain thought there might be a half a percentage of a possibility you could have harmed somebody, hence harm OCD. So you need to check on it. So the difference is that, and it's also in the compulsion part of OCD. So OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you think you've ran someone off the road, the compulsion is let me turn around my car and go check and make sure nothing happens. PTSD doesn't necessarily have a compulsion. Now, both PTSD and OCD can trigger anxiety. They can trigger depression, but PTSD typically doesn't follow a physical compulsion where your brain's like, hey, you've got to react this specific way or the thought won't stop. So it's kind of the response mechanism that's a little bit different. So what about a phobia? <laughs> Phobias, for me personally, phobias are almost separate from OCD because for me, my, you'll laugh, my, my biggest phobia truly is uh, spiders and going blind. I hate blind. spiders. I hate them. So I, I don't, I don't do well with spiders and I, I don't, I don't do well with heights, but my biggest fears by far are spiders and going blind. I just like being able to see things, <laughs> but, but none of those are attached to a what if in such a way where I feel like I would have a compulsion. So sure, there's that, well, what if I go blind? But until I think it's something that's immediately impacting my present reality, OCD typically doesn't attach to it because I, there was a huge spider in my, my dresser drawer last week and I just went and grabbed the raid and, and I just like drowned the joker. Like he, yeah. he was not gonna, <laughs> he was not gonna stay in this house with me. That was not- Burn the house down. <laughs> right. So, so with phobias, oftentimes because the fear can typically be compressed pretty quickly, like kill the spider or go, hey, Peyton, you're not going blind, you're fine. OCD usually doesn't respond to those things as quickly, which is nice because I'd hate to see a combination of OCD and spiders. I just, I don't think I, oh. I, I really wouldn't handle that one well. 
we're in Arizona, so we have oh, critters, gross. okay? Yes, we have spiders, yeah. sister. Uh, have you met a scorpion before? I have. Scorpions in, in, in are horrible. Kitchen sink. I don't know if it came up through the drain. Yeah. But I've had did. one in my kitchen sink. And, and I will tell you, that was scarier than a spider. I don't know if it was the pincher. I don't know if it's just we don't oh, see those as no. often. But the that stingers. was that was <laughs> that was bad. I think that now that they've been in our house, I've had them in my shower, I've had them in the kitchen, oh, I've no. had them in the, <laughs> my office. I found one in my garden last week. I went in there to check on my garden and I saw a, a scorpion in, in my worm bin and I freaked out because I almost put my hand in there <laughs> without a glove on right. and I I have experienced enough with ants and spiders and stuff to not do that but I wouldn't say it's it's a phobia because I do the same thing you did I, I kill the kill the scorpion right. or I call my husband to go kill it if I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom I cannot I cannot walk to the bathroom without putting on my flip-flops because I know that they're awake at night and I know they've crawled around in the bedroom before <laughs> And um, I have my phone with the flashlight and I have my <laughs> right. flip-flops looking at the ground while I'm going to the bathroom because I'm, I've never been stung. I've, I've lived here since I was a child and I've never been stung before, but I'm sure there's going to be a first time. At the... But you don't want to find out. So oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> I've got glue traps. I've got diatomaceous earth around. I've got fly swatters in every <laughs> room. I've got, I've got bug spray. So I'm, I'm almost bordering on that phobia of bugs. But you're prepared. We can, you I'm know, prepared. you can respect the phobia with the, your preparation for sure. I hate those things. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally relate. Everybody listening is probably like, I'm going to... I'm going to sign off now. They're talking about bugs. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's talk about what, when was the first time that you experienced OCD behavior? When did you remember noticing it? It's funny because I, I didn't know what it was until I was about 25 and my therapist was walking me through what compulsions typically look like. And I went, oh, that's been my whole life. Okay. It, honestly, the, the first few vivid memories I have is when I was about four or five, I couldn't get a single stain on a shirt. Even if I spilled water on my shirt as a child, I changed my clothes. Uh, my mom said on average, I went through about four sets of clothes a day. So it was, that was kind of the symmetry OCD of everything needs to be neat and tidy. And there's an order to things. I if I took two steps with my right leg, I had to take two steps with my left leg. There had to be a sense of balance, which is your symmetry. So that's kind of what picked up wow. first because, you know, at four or five, I was blessed, you know, around four or five that I didn't fully understand what was going on in the church. So there wasn't really anything else my brain could thwart or, or warp or manipulate. So probably by about the time I was eight or nine, um, a classmate of mine, he was a grade or two older than me, passed away with complications from the flu. It was just one of those one-off, his liver shut down, that triggered contamination OCD. As a child, I didn't understand that he passed away because his liver shut down. I thought it was just germs, I, and I thought germs just killed people. And so at about eight or nine, I quickly developed contamination OCD where I washed my hands a lot. 
I thought children with birthmarks had some disease and I could catch their birthmarks and I would never play with my friends who had birthmarks because I was Aww. terrified. I would contract, yeah, I could track something from them. But by about 12 or 13 is definitely when the, the religious OCD kicked on because that's when I was just getting old enough to fully comprehend what was going on within the church. And so OCD kind of knows what's most important to you in each life phase. And unfortunately, it's just quite the monster that way that it tends to manipulate whatever is not only in front of you and not what you're just experiencing, but what you value. So for me, I valued Jesus and I loved him and I wanted to like him, but I was just terrified too because of the way my church presented him. And so my brain and my spirit were totally at war for a good seven or eight years. Oh, people that listen to my show, they know that. I believe that spiritual abuse is probably one of the worst abuses yeah. because it does affect your relationship with God and how how you see him and how you react to him. Because if you don't want anything to do with God or you have this warped perception of God, I mean that's your salvation. That's your eternity right. we're talking about. Right. And it affects and it affects other things. So for me it was uh, emotionally my relationships with people trust was not something I gave out easily mm -hmm. it's not something I received well I didn't give a lot of grace because I didn't get a lot of grace from the church and so it impacted my daily relationships with friends it impacted my emotional health I was always uptight and I was very stressed to be a 12 or 13 year old child like I in in some ways the church definitely stole pieces of my childhood the church that I grew up in. Mm. Um, physically, it affects you. you I, when I'm stressed, I don't eat well. I, sometimes I don't eat at all. I don't, I forget to eat because my brain is so focused and so stressed. And so you, you feel that. I think when, like what you said, when the spiritual and when your relationship with God is, is warped and it's off kilter, your whole life is unbalanced. It, it truly mm. impacts each other aspect of your day-to-day -day life. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I'm so sorry that you had to go through oh, all that. Thank you. Let's talk about your, the dating thing, because you waited until you were married to have sex. And a yeah. lot of us make that decision to, to wait. How did that work with your OCD? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great question. So with with harm OCD, it also, you're afraid you might physically harm people. You're afraid you might sexually harm people. It, it's the whole gamut. And so what happened is my husband was fantastic. And when I told him when we first started dating, hey, this is something I don't want to do until after I'm married. He, he was a true gentleman. He was a champ. We held each other accountable. Um, what I'm not to, not to say it was easy because I have a very, no. very attractive husband <laughs> and he is wonderful in so many ways, but after I got married and then sex was now part of my life, it was just one more thing OCD could take and run with. It was just another thing to, to obsess over because here's, here's what breaks my heart. The church typically idolizes purity culture to the point where so many women think if they've lost their virginity, they're just done. Yeah. I mean, in youth groups and behind the pulpit. And again, I, sex is meant to be within the bounds of marriage. That, that's a consummation. That's a vow. And that's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. And that's why I think it's that way. But we have idolized purity over literally relationship with God. Yes. Like your purity and your soul's worth is based on your virginity. And as a married woman, I 
I still struggle to this day. I've been married for three and a half years with feeling guilty for having sex within the biblical confines of marriage because sex was seen as something so bad because no one wanted to talk about the good. No one wanted no. to say, hey, this is a blessing from God. This is a way that you can celebrate with your husband something special that you can't celebrate with anyone else. And so OCD just took that and ran with it. And so that's something oh. to this day. And I have other friends of mine who grew up in the church who say the exact same thing of, yeah, I have a friend of mine who said, I've been married. I think she's been married for 12 years. And she said she has just now gotten to the point where she feels like in some way, shape or form, it's not wrong for her to have sex with her husband because the church puts so much pressure on women and so much of their self-worth solely on sexual purity. Well, I think sexual purity has gone so far as to they don't touch or kiss or they're never alone <laughs> together. And so they go from zero to exactly. it's the wedding night and okay, you're married and now you are commanded to have sex. And so, <laughs> right. and you're just looking at each other like, um, what do we do now? Or exactly. there was no, no real sex it. ed. I mean, except the premarital counseling where you listen to those, what was it, Ed Wheat? <laughs> or those terrible slideshows oh. in high school where they just showed you what STDs <laughs> looked like. Like there, there was nobody was giving me a healthy look into this whatsoever. I, I had a normal teenage life. I was raised Catholic and I did not go into the Baptist church till I was 18 by my own choice. You know, I did not wait, to be honest and transparent. Sure. But when I rededicated my life and got saved um, in a genuine fashion, I practiced what is called secondary virginity. And um, I thought I had a pretty, pretty good, healthy view of, of sex and didn't have any weird beliefs. But um, the people that I, I dated, some people that Let's see, I dated a guy that was 40 years old, and he was a virgin, and he was Southern Baptist uh, youth pastor, and um, now I found out the reason why <laughs> he was still single. He had a serious aversion to bodily fluids, like he would not open mouth oh, kiss. In fact, I was his first kiss. Um, he came to visit me uh, for a date, and he gave me a birthday present. It was my birthday. And I said, oh, can I, can I give you a kiss as a thank you? And I mean, he didn't even know how to tilt his head. And, um, <laughs> I bet that and I didn't know at the time that I was his first kiss, but, um, I mean, I was very honored. I was his first kiss, but right. I tried to kiss him later or, and it was just kind of awkward. And then he told me, and we had these conversations like, okay, he wanted to have lots of kids. He loved kids. That's why he was a youth pastor. And and I kept asking him, <laughs> now, how, how are you going to have kids when you have this issue with body fluids? You know, <laughs> I didn't know if he had realized that sex is messy and um well maybe you like, could address that part of it. You know, the periods, the pregnancy, the hugs, the kisses, you know. Right. But the stork definitely doesn't bring the children. Mm, like, yeah, have so to figure something else out. How, how do you how do you deal with how do you deal with that? The whole it, with OCD. You know okay. that actually that does does not bother me, and, and I think it's because it, I guess it's a, a sad thing in a way is 
the different forms of OCD take different weight and different pressure. And so they steal the forefront of my brain. And so for me, what weighs out the most is still whether or not me as a married woman having sex, whether or not that is something that is religiously and morally right. So it's like that form of my brain, that part of OCD mm. is still at the forefront. And that is what I deal with the most. So definitely not fun. Except that, yes. <laughs> oh, what about, oh, you don't have any children, right? I do not. I have two dogs who are, dogs. so they, they consume so much of my life and they're so terrible that they're a good way for me to say, hey, yeah, not yet. Because <laughs> yeah. when they get on my nerves, I can at least put them in a kennel and leave for a little bit. I can't put children in a kennel and leave. Put them in a playpen. <laughs> right. You can take them to right. grandma's. <laughs> there you go. There you can. I don't have any children either. Um, I'm a I'm a dog mom, but my my dog, uh, a German Shepherd, he passed away two years ago. In fact, oh, was, I'm so sorry. Uh, Facebook just put those pictures up on you know our timeline. Oh, the memories and, are the worst. Yeah. And um, he died of cancer very suddenly, and so um, we loved him to death. But he was messy. I could never keep the house clean. The the dog hair and the slobber everywhere. So oh, I, I sweep. I sweep you, constantly. I, I just sweep. <laughs> you know. I mean, I, they're, they're honestly, I, I definitely wouldn't say they're quote unquote service dogs because they're not, but they are so good for my brain. Mm -hmm. Like they, my dogs are so loving and they also require, they're, they are needy dogs by choice and they're so needy. They want to go out. They want to play. They want to love on me, but it honestly gives my brain something healthy to focus on. And so they're messy. So I end up sweeping a million times a day. But the good they do for me mentally, it far outweighs it. That is so awesome. I mean, I totally agree. The power of dogs and animals. I mean, I'm a huge animal lover. I keep telling my husband, you know, because we like sci-fi movies. And <laughs> if I had to go back in time, I would be a veterinarian instead of, uh, I'm, in, uh, I'm in the pharmacy industry. Uh, so <laughs> I, I missed my calling. I, I told Josh that I said I would so be a vet if I could go back, except I don't think I could emotionally let things go. Like if I had a puppy who died on the table on my watch as a vet, yes, I would just yes. like my soul would just be ripped out, and I don't think I could ever recover that from is this trauma. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's why I didn't go into being a vet tech. I I went into be a pharmacy tech because. Um, as much as I loved animals, I had all kinds of animals growing up. I could not bear to having to put a dog to sleep oh, no, every no, no, no. day. There would be no way. I mean, my dog died and several of my pets died and it is traumatic. Oh but, yeah. Oh yeah. No, I can't. I ugly cry. I, I don't oh, do goodness. well in those situations. So the last thing you'd want is me holding a scalpel trying to save your dog's life. Oh yeah, we could we could talk all day about how <laughs> wonderful dogs are and how they just have a way of transcending so many so many barriers mm -hmm. in our life and and they're so valuable. I mean, yeah, I understand they're not children, but they definitely are gifts from God. They are sure. beautiful. They're beautiful communicators. They don't have to say a word, but animals 
communicate 20 times better than people in my opinion. Yes, we haven't, um, we haven't had, I guess we haven't healed long enough to get another dog. Sure. We'd be very, very picky because our, our bear was like the perfect dog and everybody loved him. And, but I, I kind of wondered if my husband would have a, an easier time because he's ill and he's mm. going through a little bit of discouragement and, and bear would have been a super big help for him during the pandemic, as well as his illness. Yeah. My dad with PTSD, um, my parents have a dog uh, who's paralyzed from the waist down. She's a little pug dots and mix. So she's, she's this weird looking thing. She can't walk, <laughs> but that, that is my dad's baby. I, I was at their house a few months ago and I heard my dad say, I love you, baby. And I said, oh, I love you too, dad. And he literally said, no, I was talking to Maggie. And I said, oh, okay. my bad. I, I forgot Gee. that was your child. So <laughs> Thanks, yeah. <laughs> right. They they are wonderful for sure. They they know when we need some extra love. Yeah. So right now with being um, a caregiver and I have a garden and I have the podcast and I have my small groups and I have a full-time job and a dog <laughs> is just another, another thing to care for. As sure. wonderful as they are, I just, I can't add another thing to my, my list of I responsibilities. Totally so, but I am I'm looking out there for the, for the perfect, perfect dog, perfect dog <laughs> 2 that, that will come into our life eventually. How has uh, OCD affected your faith now? I mean, you're, you obviously have come through, come through so much, but I mean, what's, what's your faith like right now with the OCD? I mean, you're coping with it and stuff. I've, I've, you know, the first time I visited a therapist, I, I, I wanted a Christian therapist because I wanted more than the science. I wanted, like, like we've talked about, I wanted the faith behind how to heal. And the very first thing my therapist said, um, Karen looked at me and said, I am so sorry, but I just want you to know beforehand, there is no magic pill for OCD. Uh, with mental disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar, there actually is a pill that when you take it, it quite literally can just fix things. Now, granted, yeah. you have to stay on the pill, but it, poof, it's done. Uh, there's no, there's no hands-on therapy that just makes it go away. There's quite literally no cure for it. And that's what she was saying is until God just blesses scientists with his own miracle, we're just going to have to work through this day by day. Now there's medicine that can kind of let your adrenaline glands slow down a little bit and hopefully slow down those neurotransmitters. But the thoughts and the fear is just something that you will have to embrace as part of your day-to-day -day life. And hearing that was not fun, but it was truth. And what you need is truth. That, that is the only way to heal is to actually know what you're working with and mm -hmm. I think she and I did lots of very heavy, called brain spotting therapy, lots of brain spotting therapy for about three or four months. And on the other side of that, where I saw things spiritually, as far as OCD and Jesus and me and how the three of us were going to function for, for however long I'm on this earth, I have to look at OCD as my thorn in my side. You know, Paul talks about his thorn in his side. Now, what people have guessed what they thought it was, they're not quite sure what it was. But when Paul's talking about his thorn in his side, that's where that famous verse comes from, that when I'm weak, then I am strong. God's mm -hmm. powers make perfect in my weakness. And that's when you can boast all the more in his goodness and grace. And so the way I see OCD is it's my thorn in the side. But I can also choose to believe that even with thorns, there's roses. So even though I have a thorn in the side, there can be blooms. 
There can be beautiful things that grow. There is hope on the other side of the thorns. And so that's, that's where my faith is with OCD. I've just accepted that this is that one thing that will keep me humble. It's the one thing that will remind me I'm human and I'm not God and he is God. It's the one thing where I will constantly have to lean on him for grace. And if that means that I learn to give grace to others because that I constantly have to get it myself, it's hard to say it, but it is worth it. So it's just my thorn in the side that I'm praying balloons over time. And it's really hard. It is, sure. It is super hard. I mean, I'm in a really good place with the Lord right now with coming through my, my abuse and some of the trials I'm going through right now. I have a really great relationship with God, uh, but it's really hard when we have somebody that we love or care about with OCD um, and we, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And how can we help somebody that we care about that has OCD? I'm so thankful. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> no one ever asks that. I appreciate you. My husband would be cheering you on if he could preserve that question. Yay. It's, it's funny because the number one thing a therapist will say is when I, when I want to have a compulsion, when I'm afraid a thought is true, you're supposed to do the very opposite and, and not follow through with a compulsion. Do not turn your car around. Do not wash your hands because you touched a doorknob. Don't get into the compulsion because it'll feed the thought. So it's this constant cycle. And that's why your adrenaline glands can't chill out. That's why the neuron transmitters keep going. And so for someone with OCD, if, if they confide in you that, that they just have this thought they can't shake and they always feel the need to wash their hands or to turn the car around or they have to pray, they have to drop what they're doing and pray a prayer of forgiveness immediately or they're going to hell. The best thing you can honestly do is look at people with OCD and, and you say two things. You say, hey, number one, you are okay. Because we don't believe we're okay because in our brain, we're having a total meltdown. We think we're the worst Christian ever, the worst driver ever. We are the most contaminated human ever. We're always thinking the worst about ourselves. So if you say, hey, you're okay. And hey, you are good. I believe in you. God believes in you. If you will just say those two things of, hey, you're okay, and hey, I believe in you because you're good, because God believes in you, it kind of reiterates to the brain that, hey, this really wild thought is not a patent thought. It's just a wild thought. And once your brain recognizes that, you just kind of breathe, you kind of relax, yeah, and then you go, okay, we're, we're good. We're good because someone else said, hey, you're good. You're okay. And so it really is that simple and it makes a world of difference um, when my husband speaks that truth to me, when my mom speaks that truth to me. Um, so you, you can always help someone with OCD. You don't have to have anything fancy. If you can say, hey, you're okay, hey, you're good, then all is well. And we can all do those two things that you mentioned. Right. So you don't have to have a, you know, a degree or. Exactly. No expert. PhD required. <laughs> right. Sure. You mentioned your husband. Um, he sounds like such a supportive husband. What has he had to do to adjust with your illness and making a home together? Yes, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. So with with seeking therapy, so I I didn't realize how I didn't realize I had OCD, and I also didn't realize it was so bad until his piloting career first took off. So right before COVID, when he just finished all his licensing and his hours, uh, 
he was working in an airport that was eight hours away from home because that was the only airport available. So before COVID, when every, everybody was flying, things were moving, you went to whatever airport was available. That was your home base. And that, that just was what it was. Mm-hmm. And so when he was away and I was all by myself, my brain, it got real quiet at home. So my brain got real loud. So that's when I first uh, went into therapy because I wasn't handling being married, but feeling like I was single, being cooped up in a house all by myself. So he was, he was stationed at that airport for about four months before one opened up locally and he could come home and he came home to me trying to kind of coach him into how my, to be my at-home therapist. So he, he had to, he had to learn a lot about physically, kind of like what I told you, physically, what was going on in my brain. There was a lot of teaching, me being the teacher, him being the student, but also him turning around and actively learning how to support me and doing it so well. So the biggest adjustment for him was definitely just having to be a student (laughs) and and dealing with my bad days when I was emotionally exhausted because I was mentally tired, just Mm -hmm. learning a lot of patience. And he, he really, he's really been fantastic. He is, he's my buddy. And I think, you know, you hear people call a marriage, you know, a partnership. And I didn't fully understand the idea of a true partnership of walking in sync step by step with someone until this. Oh yeah, at least a, a healthy, a healthy marriage is a partnership, right. not a Absolutely. dictatorship and a doormat. It's a true right. partnership. Uh, so let's swing to the other side of the pendulum here, just for fun. Sure. <laughs> what not to say to somebody with OCD? <laughs> I am so OCD. I hear that all the time where someone says, I am so OCD, and they follow it with something like, I just have to have my car clean. I cannot get in my car when it's not clean. I am so OCD because I have to have all my pencils lined up, color coordinated on my desk every day. It's <laughs> you can definitely have an obsession with cleanliness and organization because that is an obsession and and I totally get that. But it's the C in OCD that separates someone with a disorder and someone with not a disorder. When when you feel like you have to straighten up the pencils as if your life depends on it, as if like you can physically feel yourself not being able to breathe, you feel like you've got to sit down because you're dizzy, then we're talking about a compulsion. And that's when things are like, when I'm like, okay, yeah, you might have the disorder, welcome to the club, have fun. (laughs) <laughs> but but when someone just likes to be a neat freak, you're just a neat freak. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a neat freak. Uh, OCD attaches to that a little bit. But Don't what call I it OCD. Right. What I typically say is like, hey, until you're afraid you're running people off the road, um, you know, or until you're literally afraid you're going to hell every two seconds of the day because you just have a, a bad thought or you just, you're really in the mood to punch somebody in traffic, like, until you reach that point where you, it's truly an identity crisis and your body's physically responding to that, you probably just like things in order. So you, I'm so OCD is probably, it's probably our least favorite because people like me diagnosed with OCD, I don't walk around saying I'm so OCD it, because I, I hear it enough in my internal and my brain and it's not fun. So it's not something I'm just going to want to casually parallel to color coordinating clothes in my closet. 
I'm guilty of saying that. So I'm going to oh, stop saying that. I'm going to stop saying that because you're, you're right. That, that isn't, you know, I, know, I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to ask. I, our community of OCD people, it, it affects one and a half percent of the population. So there's not a ton of us, um, but we're very thankful when people take the time to understand where we're coming from and then they respect it. That means a lot. When obviously probably shouldn't say, well, just don't do that. Don't think that. Don't, Bingo. don't wash your hands. Yes. <laughs> just it, just it stop it. It doesn't help. Truly, when you just say, hey, you know what? You're okay. You're okay. That that works wonders. But you telling me, hey, don't wash your hands. My brain's response is, I'm in a global pandemic and I don't want to kill my grandmother. I'm going to wash my hands. Like the OCD part of your brain runs faster than any logic anybody could provide. So coming to the table with logic doesn't really work when your brain's already in fight or flight mode because people don't think logically in fight or flight mode. So if you just say, hey, you're okay, you're good. God's got this, God's got you. We, we do so much better. <laughs> the response, it truly is a game changer. I mean, uh, how do you tell somebody that you, you are a OCD? I mean, do you have some way of telling somebody so they don't trigger you? <laughs> yeah, so there's some conversations that are easier to edge into, you know, in church culture, when people are sharing their testimony or talking about what they're learning from, from God, it's, a, it's very easy for me to say, hey, you know, I'm finding grace and my mental health and that journey with God, I was diagnosed with OCD. So in certain scenarios and certain communities, it's very easy to open up it is very hard when someone does not understand where it's not already a comfortable conversation. But people in your circle who truly care, I have a, a very dear friend of mine at work, um, when maybe two or three months into COVID, our office went back temporarily and then went, hey, this is not a good idea, go back home. I had a very dear friend of mine and I told her before we went back into work, I said, um, hey, I found out I have contamination, OCD, I, I'm not doing okay coming back into work, like door handles are making me panic. If anyone even sounds like they're coughing, I'm, I'm truly just internalizing all of it. And that girl, she's my best friend to this day. She truly waited on me anytime I was with her and she opened every door for me. She, she took the stairs with me instead of the elevator so we weren't cramped up. And so as hard as it is with people in your corner, you know, will really support you. It can be as simple as, hey, I'm about to walk into this scenario. I'm not comfortable because I have OCD and, and this is what triggers me. If you could really help me and maybe kind of be my barrier, that would mean so much to me. And you always get that little, you always get that little old lady or, or people that are huggers and oh, oh i mean yes. i mean how do you <laughs> tell them you know i'm not a hugger i'm sorry or i, I know, do the fist bump <laughs> i've been it's one of those things where again in southern culture it's just what you you hugged everybody people wanted to shake your hand i just kept an arsenal of germex in my car and i just embraced the hug for the two seconds that oh. it existed and i would just walk away and just immediately <laughs> I, to be honest, I'd come home and change my clothes and likely shower, but I would douse myself in Germex when I got that Lysol spray in, <laughs> in your purse. 
<laughs> oh yes. It's, I have I have different brands that I like, different sizes, <laughs> spray versus foam versus gel. There's an art to it in my world of the sanitizing. Oh. I do all that when I go traveling on an airplane, even before. Oh, I don't blame you. Even don't before blame you COVID, I was just say no. Everything. Airports were gross long before COVID was. I think if if airplanes and airlines were cleaning those planes like they were supposed to, they uh, probably uh -huh. wouldn't have yes. spread <laughs> the, the disease as much as it had spread. Um, right. But now I, I like, completely agree. Um, so every time we would we would go overseas, we would both get a cold or a flu, even though we had our flu shots and stuff. We'd go over there, and somebody would be in the subway because we would oh, take sure. the metro all over Europe, and and you uh, always get near that one guy, like out of oh, the thousands of people, yes. you, you could sit one by, guy, and there's always guy, that person. Know. Yep. One guy that looks time. sick, and 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 we did the first time we were in Paris. We got into this crowded car and my husband whispers to me, that girl over there, she's she looks really like death warmed over. We're gonna get sick, <laughs> aren't we? And I'm like, Yeah, a week later I was sick and then and then he got sick, but uh I'm a little bit um careful with my husband now because um, right. he doesn't have an immune system right now. Mm. He's on this drug that it's an immunosuppressant. And so he doesn't like to wear masks, but I, I told him when we went, we went to Costco where my parents took us to Costco and um, he didn't want to wear the mask because it was so hot in the Costco. And I said, you, you have to, there's, sure. there's, you don't have an immune system and even just a plain common cold, forget COVID. You come home, right. I come home with a cold or you, you know, touch yeah. something that somebody had a cold virus that will put you in the hospital. Right. Yeah, okay? I, I completely understand that. And for sure. My uh, my oldest brother died in December from COVID in the hospital. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, he had other health issues. Um, he was a kidney recipient, kidney transplant. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd like you know that's probably what I, I say. I'm guilty of saying OCD about cleanliness now because I have, I sure. have yeah, yeah. I have to care for and lots of overthinking that you might not have had to do outside yeah, of pandemic. Sure. So, but that's that's fascinating about the things yeah. that you have to go through. Um, I've had people in my small groups that were married to people with contamination, OCD, and they um, you know, I didn't know what to tell them or how to deal with sure. it, but they were exhausted. I knew that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. 100%. Now let's, let's leave, leave the folks with some hope with living this disease. <laughs> what are the treatments out there or the coping mechanisms that you can give folks? So I, I, so I wrote a book about a year ago called Not So By Myself, and I dive a lot into my journey through mental health and what that looked like in light of church trauma and light of my husband being gone. So I dive a lot into it there, but one chapter, I, I literally focus on the concept that silence is not strength. I think I have three great uncles, all three went overseas from Vietnam. All three came back home with severe PTSD and my family slowly adopted this concept that silence is strength. Don't talk about what you've been through. Don't talk about what you're going through. Don't let people see your weak spot. It leaves you wide open. But there's so much power that I think God gives us in vulnerability and admitting our weaknesses and admitting where we're not okay. Because when we admit it, there's opportunity for healing. 
And so the first thing I tell people is, I'm not saying you've got to run to a therapist's office. I know a lot of people struggle with that feeling taboo or they don't want to talk to a stranger. And those are things I totally understand. But I am a big proponent of get it off your chest. If you're, if you're mentally compartmentalizing something, your body is physically taking a toll. Your spirit is taking a toll. And your overall health is just not where it should be. And so my number one thing is silence is not strength whether it's your spouse or someone at church you trust, or, or it is a Christian, I totally recommend Christian therapy. I'm a big proponent. Uh, find a way to talk about it. If you're wary of medication, you're not sure you want to be on it. If medication honestly feels like you're failing at not getting a grip on it, that's totally normal. I felt the same way, but ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid to talk to a clinical therapist or your doctor about medication options. And a lot of people just say, pray your way through something like this. And you just say, hey, God, take away my OCD. That's not, <laughs> that's not typically how it works. And so then I tell people, let your prayer life be very open and raw and honest. Don't just say, hey, God, take away this OCD. Feel free to walk him through everything your brain has went through that day. He already knows what you've went through anyway. Tell him when you're frustrated with it, when you're sad with it, when you're mad with it, when your pride's taken a blow because of it. And just let it be a time for you to be open with not just the therapist and not just the person at your church or your spouse, but with your God too. I found a lot of healing and a lot of grace when I could have open, honest conversation with God about my mental health, especially growing up in the church I did where I was afraid to even talk to God. So don't underestimate very vulnerable prayers and people you can trust. But it's... um. Well, we talk a lot about, you know, not stuffing here. I don't know if it was the same in your church, but in our church, they didn't talk about mental health. And they went as far as to say, if you were depressed or if you had anxiety or if you um, had any kind of physical ailment or especially mental health issues that you didn't have enough faith or, you know, you just need to pray and read the Bible more and then it will go away. Right, right. No, I grew up in the same thing. Nobody talked about it. And I think that's why I, I'm almost passionate about explaining the physical side of what's going on because nobody questions the diabetic who goes to the doctor because their pancreas isn't working. Nobody questions the person with the, the cholesterol levels that are unbalanced. So they go to the doctor and get medications, make sure the blood's flowing well. Same thing with mental health. It's literally the brain. It's a different organ and it is not working like it should. And it needs medicine just like the pancreas, just like the heart, just like any other organ. Unfortunately, because the brain is kind of the powerhouse that sends all the messages to all parts of your body, it just impacts people in a different, often more open way. And so that I totally agree with you. The church has been pretty silent on it and no one's willing to say, hey, we recognize this is, is a physical disorder. This is not a direct parallel to you not having enough faith or you not walking the walk. Yeah, thank you for addressing that because Absolutely. I know a lot of people watching and listening to us have those very fears that I'm not good mm -hmm. enough for God or I have this, I'm not, a, I'm not perfect. I don't have right. a perfect body. I'm somehow broken and God doesn't love me as much. So I'm, I'm glad that you uh, have that encouragement for our folks today. Sure. You know, I've, I've heard of EMDR. 
Uh, I, I know it's really great for, for trauma survivors. Is it effective for OCD? Yes. So that is EMDR is very effective. It's all, it's pretty much a form of brain spotting. They're quite literally the same thing. So what happens is you physically pin a point in the room. So you lock eyes at, on a point in the room where you, you almost can feel alleviated a little bit. For me, I always draw to natural light. If there's a window or it's sunny, my, my eyes always go to the light spot. And you start with your immediate need with why you're in the therapist's office that day, the exact thing that's triggered you, the exact thing that's bothering you. And what happens is while you're gazed on something that is very healthy and has calmed your body down, you start talking through that one trigger. And what happens, and it happens to me every time, the therapist leads you in conversation that walks you back to the very root of the trigger. Because often it's not the trigger itself, it's the root cause of the trigger. What made the trigger a trigger? Yes. And when you can walk your way back to, oh, that was the root, the trigger loses a lot of its power because it's no longer the trigger. It's, hey, here's the actual problem. Here's, it. oh, there was church trauma. Oh, there was, you lived with your father who had PTSD and it was undiagnosed for a few years. Oh, you had a classmate who died of the flu. Like, oh, okay. Now we can address the actual problem. And so now the triggers don't hold as much weight. And in fact, the triggers diminish over time they slow down that's that's awesome that we that we have that now right we, for sure we didn't have these kind of therapies what 20 years ago i don't think no 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 ocd has not hasn't even been an actual thing but for a few decades it is not old in society it's not old in science hmm Tell the folks how they can get hold of your resources, connect with you, and I, what I what I like to tell people because it's what I wish I would have told myself years ago, especially when I was about thirteen and I was afraid to like God. Is whatever picture you you have of God, think of the very best thing about Him, even if you're skeptical of Him, even if you're mad at Him. Think of the the best thing about Him you can muster where you are. And I promise you, he is 100 times better than that. And then think of you. Think of the best part of you, even if you're mad at yourself, even if you don't like yourself, if you're experiencing shame and guilt. Think of that one thing about you that you do like, and God sees you in 100 times the light of that very thing. So you are seeing the grace and goodness of God, and he's turning around and giving you that grace. So just that reflection of how good God is, but also the flip side is how good he sees you. And when you can just remind yourself of that, when you're not liking yourself and when you're honestly not liking God, when you can just reinforce goodness and grace, I'm not saying it makes the situation better because that's usually not how it works, but it gives your soul a lot of peace. And when your soul can breathe, you can at least see the situation as something to work through rather than the situation working all over you. So that's what I like to tell people. I encourage people to check out my book, Not So By Myself. It's on Amazon. That's probably going to be the quickest way for you to get it. And I have a website. It's PeytonGarland.me. And there you can check out more about my book, my blog. I have some links to my social media there. I have a, I call it the Chitty Chat tab where you can send me a, a message. We mm. can get on Zoom over coffee or tea and talk about anything. Because I believe that we, we're here to connect to people. And that's only going to come when we're vulnerable and honest and open with creating community. So 
Amen. Again, PeytonGarland.me. If you want to come chit chat, you're more than welcome. Wow, this this has been so fantastic. You've offered Thank you. so much. I've had a blast. So much valuable content for the folks, and I've learned a lot. And we had fun. I mean, even talking about a difficult topic. I am definitely going to have all of the the links in the show notes for everybody. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Honored to be here. So for everybody listening, as always, I want to end the show with you are no longer a victim. You are victorious. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.